Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also want to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoyed the sermon today. God bless. Welcome to Renew Church. It's so good to, to be with you guys. Uh, my name is David. I'm the family pastor here, for those of you that don't know me. And uh, I'm just so excited that we're able to jump right into God's Word. So uh, we are on the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're on Luke chapter 8. And we want to just jump in. Uh, there's so much to talk about this morning. So we want to focus this morning on Jesus as healer. Jesus as healer. And one of the hallmarks to indicate that Jesus was the Messiah was that he would bring healing. The prophets foretold in Scripture that Messiah would free people from their bondage. He would recover sight to the blind, that he would deliver the oppressed, that he would pour out supernatural blessing, so that when Messiah came, he would usher in the Lord's favor. Now, I want to do something. If we could look back uh, and review... Uh, a couple messages back, uh, one chapter back to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we want to look at this, and I, I think this will illustrate what I'm saying. In Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 20, let's look at it. When John's disciples came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the Messiah, the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask, are you the Messiah? And Jesus tells them, look around you. Look at what's happening right now. I want you to know that I'm fulfilling the prophecies of Messiah as the healer. And Jesus spends his entire earthly ministry affirming his role as Messiah by healing people from bondage, from oppression, from sickness, from slavery, just like the prophets foretold that he would. And so this is really important to bear in mind that Jesus' miraculous ministry was tethered his messianic mission, that his miracles were tied to his messiahship. That's so important to understand. Jesus' healing ministry was so well attested to that in the first century, his enemies denounced his healing as the work of the devil. The skeptics at that time reasoned that his healing was elaborate magic tricks designed to fool everyone. Historians in the first century recorded his healings without any explanations. But whatever their reasons, 
No one denies that the one central component of Jesus' ministry was healing. And even today, 2,000 years into the present, we affirm that Jesus heals. Can I get an amen? Amen. He loves to restore broken lives. He loves to renew a people that live in a lost and fallen world. He loves to deliver people from bondage and oppression and slavery. So healing is at the core of who Jesus is. And I don't know where you are today, but maybe you're here and you're struggling with sin, that you are shackled to an addiction that you're in bondage to. Or maybe you're in a, entering a season of sickness, of cancer, of another disease or an illness. Maybe you're experiencing sorrow, maybe depression, or maybe you're in a deep pit of despair. Whatever the spiritual, emotional, or physical healing is that you need, no matter where you are today, Jesus wants to meet you at your deepest need. He desires to be your healer. So let's look at our text this morning found in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And those of you that um, you know, have a device, why don't you turn there? If not, you can look up here. And here we see two powerful stories interwoven together where two people experience Jesus as healer. And let me tell you, these two people uh, couldn't have been more different from each other. These are two polar opposites in Israel. One was a privileged man, while the other was a marginalized woman. One was respected and honored, while the other was rejected and ignored. One was rich, wealthy. The other was poor, destitute. One was the leader of the community, and the other was isolated from the community. And you know what this teaches us in this story? That our Lord Jesus cares for both. That he cares for whatever spiritual or physical spectrum that you find yourself. And he, find, and he has come to heal you of your specific needs. These two opposite people access Jesus' healing the same way. And that's what's so beautiful about this story. So we want to see how they access this healing by studying two important truths from this passage. If you're taking notes, I'm a big, uh, friendly uh, note person, okay? If you're taking notes, please do this. Number one. To experience Jesus as healer, can we put it up? We must first acknowledge our need of Messiah. All right, let me say that again. To experience Jesus as healer, we must first acknowledge our need of Messiah. Let's look in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. So vast multitudes followed Jesus wherever he went. Why is that? It's because they have never seen anyone like him before. I mean, he spoke with an authority that was unlike anyone else. He healed supernaturally. No one could do this. And so they'd never seen it. He healed supernaturally all manners of issues that we've already described. And so thousands who were in need, in desperate need, flocked to him. In verse 41, then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. So I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, this man fell at Jesus' feet. Notice the posture. Jairus, or Jairus shows homage and deference to Jesus by kneeling before him, by acknowledging his authority. And this is shocking. It's a shocking scene when you realize who Jairus is. He is the synagogue leader. Now, those of you that kind of know what a synagogue is like today, the synagogue in the first century was the local Jewish meeting place. 
It was where Jewish, it was where the Jewish community regularly met for spiritual growth. Like a church, they would worship and pray and sing. They would study scripture. They would receive training. They would even socialize with one another. The synagogue was the lifeblood of the Jewish community. And back then, a little bit different from now, every Jew attended synagogue regularly. It was mandatory for a good standing Jew. And so each synagogue had one ruler to lead the community. And his job would be to provide judgment on civil and religious matters within the community. So this was a powerful, prestigious position. And by the way, this is important, okay? The Pharisees were the main influencers in the synagogue. They were the teachers and the leaders. So this man was probably, most probably, a Pharisee. Now, this is a startling surprise for Jairus to come to Jesus like this, falling at his feet. This ruler was submitting to Jesus' rulership and authority. You know what this meant? This meant that Jairus was acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. Remember, Jesus' miracles were tied to his Messiahship. We just talked about that. So to affirm his healing from God meant to affirm that he was sent by God. Jesus leaves no room for any ambiguity where he says, I'm Messiah and I'm doing the works prophesied that Messiah would do. So J Jairus was breaking from his religious moorings. The religious establishment had rejected Jesus. The synagogues had closed their doors to Jesus. The Pharisees were in complete conflict with Jesus. And by the way, that is why most of the Pharisees said that his healing power came from the devil. Because they did not embrace Jesus. They rejected him as Messiah, but then they couldn't deny the supernatural miracles that were happening before their very eyes. And so they had to conclude, well, this is not from God, so it must come from the devil. And you see, this blasphemy is what Jesus called them on the carpet for. And he said that was the unpardonable sin. That any sin could be forgiven except for this one. It was in this context that Jairus risks everything to come to Jesus. Now why? Well, verse 42, let's look at it. It says, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. You know, I can attest to at least a little bit of how Jairus felt because uh, I only have one child. Uh, my, my wife is here today, and I, I don't know if I'm going to cry or not. I probably won't, all right? But Jairus had an only child. I had an only child, and my only daughter, actually, uh, she was a miracle baby, you know, for 10 years. We couldn't have children. We prayed. We, we, we did everything, and God gave us a, a baby. And this week, this Wednesday, I moved her into UCLA, all right? Did I ever tell you that she goes to UCLA? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I moved, <laughs> I moved her into UCLA, and, uh, you know, um, we moved her, and uh, on the way back, I began to cry because of all the memories uh, that flooded my mind, and uh, my wife can attest to this. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I remember in elementary school, uh, my daughter came up to me and said, Daddy, what's the best school in America? And I said, Harvard. And she said, hmm. And I said, but Harvard is far away, honey. You don't want to go to Harvard. You'll be far away from mommy and daddy. So she thought about it, right? And she said, well, what's the best school around here? And I said, UCLA, right? <laughs> yes, I said, it's true, right? UCLA. And so she said, you know what, I'm going to go to UCLA. 
And she, she actually did. She made it in. And uh, I prayed for a nerd, and God gave me a nerd, right? And I'm so proud of her, you know? But driving home, I began to cry because of 18 years of memories that flooded into my mind. You know, the first words that she ever said was, Appa, which means daddy, Appa. Not umma, which means mommy. She said that way later, okay? But she was Appa, Appa, you know? She's the daddy's girl. That's the first words I remember, right? You know, I remember taking her to church, or church, not Chuck E. Cheese. I, I wrote Chuck E. Cheese. I can't see. I got older, okay? Taking her to Chuck E. Cheese, right? And she having so much fun at Chuck E. Cheese and just really enjoying watching her eat a popsicle that was as big as her, and she would eat the whole thing, and I would just watch her and just be amazed, right, at doing that. I remember teaching her basketball moves, right? Uh, when she entered basketball, I would teach her post-up moves, and I would teach her how to shoot. Uh, I recall singing Disney songs with her. We sang musical duets together, right? A whole new world. Both of us know the parts, and we, sing, we used to sing it. She will never do that today, but she used to do that with me. I remember her eating black bean noodles with sweet and sour pork. That was like her favorite thing, when she completed something, you know, she would ask, hey, let's eat jajangmyeon, black bean noodles, you know, and that was her favorite food. And so I had mixed emotions coming home. It was hard to drive, you know, because I was crying and I had mixed emotions because I was excited about her future. But at the same time, I was mourning that I wouldn't see her every day, that the joy of my life wouldn't be in our house anymore. You know, how precious would this only girl have been to Jairus. Think about this. In the Jewish culture, 12-year-old 12 12-year-old 12 girl would have had their bat mitzvah, signifying the dawn of womanhood, right? Starting life as a woman with a full future ahead of her. This child who was brought up, who has brought so much laughter to the home, this young lady who embodies a future legacy is tragically dying. And now Jairus is desperate. And you know, tragedy will do that. Personal pain will cause you to look up because there's nowhere else to look but up and to cry out to the only one who can save. You see, Jairus knows his power and prestige can't help him now. Jairus realizes that human resources can't solve his tragedy. His desperation produces motivation for the Messiah. And you know, Jairus is an object lesson to what Jesus was teaching. Jesus came for those who acknowledge their need of him, those who confess their helplessness, those who admit to their hopelessness, those who come in brokenness, in humility, genuinely expressing their need, just like Jairus did in the story, amen? To experience Jesus as healer, we must first acknowledge our need of him. There's a second point that I want you to get to access Jesus' healing. To experience Jesus' healer, we must second place our faith completely on him. Let's look in verse 43. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Verse 44. And she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. So first we saw a man desperately falling at Jesus' feet. Now we see a woman desperately touching Jesus' cloak. And I love this story. What was, this, what, what was about this woman? Well, she had a disease. The Bible says that she had been bleeding for 12 years. 
And I, I think this is interesting. Mark chapter 5, verses 26, the gospel of Mark adds this. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So this woman had used up all of her money to find a cure. For those 12 years, she looked for a healing, for a healer, and she had spent it all. There was no affordable health care in the first century. So not only was this woman diseased, but now she is also destitute. So what does she do? Well, she comes up with a plan. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, it says that she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And here's the specifics. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, I want to show you Jesus' cloak and what he wore. Can we put it up? All right? The Aramaic word for cloak is a talit. I know. You thought maybe I was just being fashionable, right? <laughs> I am fashionable. But no, this is, this is actually an illustration, okay? The Aramaic word for cloak is a talit. It was an outer garment that was worn by the Jews. So every Jewish male wore this in public. It distinguished that person as a Jew. So when you saw a talit, you knew, oh, that person is a Jew, right? And they would have worn this in public, and Jesus would have worn this in public. My talit is more conventional, or is more ceremonial, excuse me, than the conventional uh, talits that was worn in Jesus' day, right? So it's a lighter, it's lamb's wool. Uh, his would have been uh, uh, more like a coat. It, the material would have been thicker, but yet it would have looked like this, a long rectangular type of you know, uh, 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 piece of garment, and today, the Jews still wear the tallit, but they don't wear it around, right? They'll take it to shul, to synagogue, to the worship places, and they'll bring it, and they've designated this now a prayer shawl. So this is what they use when they come to pray at synagogue. Now, I want you to notice something really interesting. On the tallit, you have these tassels, okay? They're on the four corners of the tallit. And the reason why these are important was because God commanded them to have these. They were called the tzitzit. Can you say that with me? Tzitzit. tzitzit. It's fun to say. Tzitzit. tzitzit. Okay, so they had these tzitzit on all four corners of their talit, okay? Now, the reason it was important was because in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22, God commanded them to wear these tzitzit as a reminder of their commitment to him and their obedience to God's word. And so the tzitzit identified that that was a Jewish person. When you saw tassels on the person in the first century, you knew right away, oh, that person is a Jew. That person, you know, is a part of those people, right? So why did she touch the tallit? I want you to notice her posture. The Bible says that she comes up behind him and touches the edge of his cloak. Her posture shows that she doesn't want to be noticed, right? She's not confident or comfortable approaching Jesus, She's secretive. She needs healing, but she doesn't want to be seen by Jesus. So she steals a touch on the, t on the tassels where Jesus wouldn't have noticed. She steals a touch on the tallit. That means her actions are timid. Why? Well, in Leviticus 15.25, it says this. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual period... Or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. The woman will be unclean as long as the bleeding continues. This is what the Torah says. This is what 
all Jews under Mosaic law would understand. And this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. In the Jewish law and culture, her disease made her perpetually, ceremonially unclean. You know what that means? That means that everything she touched was unclean. Her bed, her chair, her possessions. Anyone who touched her was ceremonially unclean for a period of time. That meant that she was an isolated outcast, that she couldn't go to temple, that she was denied access into any synagogue, that she was barred from offering sacrifices, that she couldn't attend any of the feast days. She was excluded from all Jewish life because of her disease. So that means that not only was she diseased and destitute, even worse, she was deserted and discarded. But my friend, she had a plan. Why did she touch the tallit? I want you to notice her plan in verse 44. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. She touches the edge of the tallit. She says, if only I can touch the edge of his tallit, then I will be healed. Now, we can read this story and misunderstand that this woman was a free spirit, that she marched to the beat of her own drum, that she decides based on superstition uh, to touch the tallit of a holy man because maybe touching a tallit of a holy man would give her some kind of healing. And what does she have to lose anyway? She's desperate. She has some faith, so she plans this superstitious Hail Mary move to be healed. I mean, can we really blame her? And God, because he's compassionate and gracious, decides to show grace to this woman, uh, well-meaning as she is and misguided as she is. And you know, that's how I was taught in Sunday school. I don't know if you were taught that way too about this story. But that is not what Luke is communicating. Her actions were far from that. Her demeanor may have been secretive. Her touch may have been timid. But her faith was truly amazing. As a matter of fact, this woman is an object lesson for the idea of faith. Her actions show us what it means to place our faith completely on Jesus. Let me explain. Every Jew living at this time would have known the writings of the prophet Malachi. He was the last prophet in the Bible that foretold of Messiah's coming. So everyone would have known the prophet Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, could you put it up? This is the prophecy about the coming Messiah. I love this. In Malachi 4.2, it says this, For you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Okay? The son of righteousness is a title referring to Messiah. And so Malachi says, when Messiah comes, there will be healing in his wings. Okay? Now my talit, right? The edge of my cloak is called the kanaf. Okay, in Hebrew. You know what the kanaf means? It literally means wings, okay? On the kanaf hangs the, what is this called again? Tzitzit. I know, it's fun to say, right? Tzitzit. Do you know what one of the meanings of tzitzit is? It's wings, okay? The kanaf and tzitzit are wings on wings. So my talit, or talit, the edges are called the wings, all right? Can you see where they get that image? Can you see it? Right? It looks like wings. As a matter of fact, the tzitzit look like feathers, right? So let me give it to you this way. Uh, those of you that aren't sure about this, okay? So like a traditional tuxedo has tails, you know, that long piece. We call, they're not real tails, right? But they kind of look like tails, right? 
As a tuxedo has tails, so a tallit, right, has wings. Okay? Do you understand where I'm going with this? All right? Do you get this faith? She came up behind him and touched his wings. She said, if only I touch his wings, I will be healed. Can I get an amen? Amen. She believes the prophecy of Malachi. She believes the text of the word of God. She believes this is Yeshua HaMashiach, the promised Messiah. She believes Jesus is the son of righteousness that rises with healing in his wings. She believes with all her heart that Jesus can heal her. So she appropriates that faith by touching him. And in verse 44, it says, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Amen. 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 What faith. Verse 45, it says, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how he, uh, she had been instantly healed. So picture the scene. The massive crowds are pressing on Jesus as he walks to Jairus' house. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Peter is shocked at this question. And he says, Lord, all these people are touching you. And you ask who specifically touched you? And Jesus says, yes, it's different. Power has come out of me. And this woman who is diseased, who is an outcast, shouldn't even be in public, wants to hide. But there's no use. And so she tells Jesus everything. She spills her guts, her desire for healing. The actions based upon the Old Testament scriptures that he is Messiah. The fact that she is healed instantly. And then in verse 48, it says, then he says to her, I love this. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go home in peace. What a wonderful, beautiful picture of complete faith in Jesus the Messiah. Amen? We're not done, okay? Let's go back to the other story. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Can you imagine hearing this as you're on your way to find healing for your daughter? You're too late. If I were Jairus and I'm, I'm reading this story, you know what? Being in the picture, uh, in the position of Jairus, I would have felt absolute regret. I would have started thinking, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, right? I would have started thinking, Thinking, if only we had left sooner, right? Or if only we weren't interrupted. I mean, this woman has had an issue for 12 years. Surely she could have waited a little longer, right? My daughter is the one who needs this. If only I had done this thing or that thing. If only I didn't do this thing or that thing. I'm sure that all this regret poured out on Jairus. And many times that's how we feel when tragedy strikes us. It's too late now. If only... But that's when Jesus reminds us that his timetable is different from ours. Let's look in verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. Now, in my 21st century mind, I read this part and I see a hundred Hollywood tropes, okay? I see a bunch of just, just believe and everything will be great, right? Just believe in yourself. Just believe in the power of belief. But you know what? Jesus is not teaching that. He's not encouraging a Disney fairy tale. Some people, even in the 21st century, we have the idea that faith itself is some magical, mystical force like Star Wars 
May the force be with you, right? And if you possess it, you have power. But let me say this, and this is really important. Faith in and of itself is nothing. It's useless. Faith in faith itself is nothing. It's worthless. Faith must be placed in the right place. It's the object of your faith that's important. Faith is only as good as its object. So the object of faith is Jesus the Messiah. Here, Jesus wants Jairus to put his trust completely on him. So he tells him, do not fear, Jairus. I'm not too late. You have believed in me. That's why you came and fell at my feet. You believed I was Messiah. Just keep believing in me right now. You know, I'm reminded of a similar story in John chapter 11. And I really believe this is a parallel story. Where Lazarus was sick. And Jesus didn't come and so he died. And Jesus comes too late. And Martha runs to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. She's saying, Jesus, why didn't you come sooner to save my brother? And do you remember what Jesus says to her in John 11? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if they die. And then he looks at Martha and says, do you believe this? Right? He says, I am the resurrection. I am the one who resurrects from death. Can you keep on believing in me right now, Martha? And do you remember what Martha says? She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. She's saying, I completely put my trust in you as the object of my faith. And Lazarus came forth. Amen? That's what he's saying here. And what is Jairus' response? Well, you know, Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew does. In Matthew 9, 18, this is what Jairus says. My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jairus says, I believe you are Messiah and I completely put my trust in you as the object of my faith. Let me close it this way. In verse 54 to 56, it says, but Jesus took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This little girl, because of the faith of Jairus, right, was able to be uh, raised from the dead. You know, um, one of my life verses is Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16. It's one of the verses I love, and it says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As Christians, faith is essential to our lives. It is the air that we breathe. Faith is necessary for our regeneration when we become a Christian, when we're born into his family, but it continues to be necessary in our sanctification as we grow in the family of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Can I get an amen? So how about you this morning? Are you experiencing Jesus as healer? Are you coming to Jesus with all of your needs? Honestly, humbly, bringing them before the throne of God. Are you placing your faith in him daily to meet those needs? Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for your people. And we know that they are in different stages, in different uh, life stages, in different um, things in their lives, Lord. I pray that you would meet them as they are, where they are 
as they live a life of faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-host together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to to, uh, have you join us again.